0: So, if you have been here for a while, you know that one of my favorite Bible stories is the story of Jonah and the whale. It really is one of my top two or three favorite Bible stories. And the reason is because, like Jonah, I ran from my call to ministry. And so, in many ways, the story is my story. And because of that, I like to share it. In fact, this is probably the third time in the ten years I've been here that I've wanted to speak a little bit about this story. So, let's get started with a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto thee, O Lord our God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Go to Nineveh. And give them a message. That was it. Just go and speak a few words. But there are some things a person will not do. I mean, we all draw the line somewhere. There are some things we will not do. Go to Nineveh. God might just as well have said, love Isis. Or, whoever it is that is your enemy, reconcile with that person, those people. I mean, there are some things a person just will not do. We all draw the line somewhere. And Jonah drew the line with Nineveh. So the first opportunity he had, he hopped on a ship and he headed in exactly the opposite direction, to Tarshish, the rock of Gibraltar a far-off and exotic place, a place of mystery, of intrigue, mostly a place to hide, to hide from God. Now, at first, I picture the voyage being quite pleasant. Blue sky, the water is calm, maybe dolphins dancing alongside of the ship. But it's not too long until the scene begins to change as on the horizon is the, the sky turns dark, and then soon the wind begins to blow, and then the thunder starts rattling the ship as the lightning cracks above, and pretty soon the ship is being tossed to and fro, so much so that the sailors are afraid the ship is going to sink, and it's at that moment when they grab everything that isn't nailed down and toss it overboard in hopes of saving themselves. And when that doesn't work, well, they grab old Jonah by the seat of the pants, and they throw him overboard as well kerplunk Now as Jonah sinks toward the bottom of the sea above all grows calm hide from God really really you think you can hide from God Well as Jonah sank toward the bottom of the sea it, there must have come a point where he mu- where he must where he thought things couldn't get any worse and then they did Because a giant fish swam toward him, and the giant fish opened its mouth, and the giant fish swallowed him whole. (sniffs) Hide from God, really. Well, what happened next is kind of ironic, because what happens next is prayer. You know, six leagues under the sea, deep kind of prayer. And what made it so ironic is this Jonah who thought he could hide from God in Tarshish, now thinks God ought to hear him from the belly of a fish deep below the sea. And so he prayed, maybe first doing a little bargaining, you know, God, if I win the lottery, I'll give you 10%. Did I say 10%? Make it 20%. God, if you get me out of this, I will. But at some point, it became real. His prayers became deep. God, help me. God, save me. God, help me, he prayed. And for the first time in the story, Jonah gets something right. Because God does hear him. And God does help him. God does save him. The giant fish surfaced. And then it spit up. And out spewed Jonah. And before he could even wipe the seaweed and the fish slobber off of his face, the word of the Lord came to Jonah again, go to Nineveh and give them a message. Jonah drug his feet as he entered that great city. He made his way to town square where people will gather for this or for that or for the other reason. He pulled up a soapbox, stood on top, cleared his throat, and then shouted out, only 40 more days until Nineveh is overthrown. That was it. Eight little words. All that seaweed and fish slobber for eight little words. And you would think those words would have meant nothing to the Ninevites. After all, Nineveh was a great city, 120,000 people. And Jonah was just one guy and a fishy-smelling one at that. But we know, when the word of God is spoken, something always happens. Even if it's a simple word, like God loves you. When the word of God is spoken, something happens. People heard him. And suddenly they were convicted to their hearts. They passed the word on to others and then to others. And pretty soon, everybody in Nineveh Everybody is on their knees praying to God. God, help us. God, save us. God, help us. And guess what? God heard their prayers too. And God helped them too. And God saved them too. And that ticked old Jonah off, because we all draw the line somewhere, and Jonah had drawn the line with Nineveh, I knew you were going to do this, God, I knew you were going to show him mercy, why did you have to bring me down to see this thing, how about a little hellfire and damnation? A little fire and brimstone raining from heaven. After all, they're the bad guys. They're the ones who have done despicable things. They deserve to be punished. They deserve to be punished. They at least deserve three days in the belly of a fish. After all, they're worse than I am, right? 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 Jonah turned and marched out of town because we all draw the line somewhere. Let's turn our attention to the reading of Scripture.
1: Parable of the Good Samaritan from the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, Jerry. So the parable of the Good Samaritan might very well be Jesus' best-known story. I mean, even non-Christians have heard of this story, or at least the phrase, the Good Samaritan. And it's an important story, not just because it gives some kind of simple moral teaching that all of us, Christian or non-Christian, can apply to our lives and make life a little bit better, but also, and maybe more so, because it helps us to see something of the difference between earthly life and kingdom living. It's a story about the lines that we draw to separate ourselves from other people and what we will do to defend those lines. It's a difficult story. Difficult because... Well, Samaritans are in it. And you remember back in those days, the Jews hated Samaritans and the Samaritans hated Jews. Probably not too different from Jewish-Palestinian relations today. Or Christian-Muslim relations in some parts of the world. Or relations you might have with somebody that you would consider your enemy. I mean, substitute that name, whoever that is, that name of whoever whatever you consider to be your enemy, substitute that name for Samaritan, you'll understand how difficult this parable becomes. The parable begins with a lawyer asking Jesus a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same question we heard a rich young man ask Jesus in last week's story. And like last week's story, the, the lawyer only understands earthly life. He doesn't understand the ways of the kingdom. So he only knows how to approach this from where he's come from. You know, in this world, you got to work to earn your reward. And if you want something, you got to pay the price. And, and so he understood the kingdom of God to be like that kind of business transaction where he does what he needs to do in order to get what he wants. He he didn't understand that the kingdom is different from that, that it's more like a family that we're invited into. We're invited into it not because of anything that we have done or anything that we will do for the family. We're invited into it simply because the head of the family, God, loves us. And knows that the family is not complete without you or without me. And we don't have to do anything to earn our way into this family. We simply accept the invitation, take our seat at the family table. Well, the lawyer didn't understand the way of kingdom life. He only understood earthly life. And so he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus knows that there's something behind that question for him so he does what Jesus often does which is respond with another question. What do you think? What does the law say? Jesus says. And the lawyer says well we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves." and that's a pretty good answer. In fact that's what Jesus says. That's a good answer. Do that. And that's when we get to the heart of the matter. When the lawyer asks the real question. I mean, certainly the lawyer knew of Jesus, right? He knew of him already. And he knew that Jesus had a habit of crossing those conventional Jewish lines. He knew that he was always crossing those lines and associating with people other than Folks like us. I mean, Jesus had just gotten back from Samaria, where he spent time with their enemy. So he wanted to know, who's the neighbor? Jesus? I mean, the lawyer could answer the question for himself. He knew, for him, neighbors were folks like him. You know, people on his side of the line. Folks on the other side of the line, they weren't neighbors. And he could love folks on his side of the line. He could manage that. Where it was difficult was the folks on the other side of the line. Folks on his side of the line, those were neighbors. Folks on the other side of the line, those were enemies. So tell me, Jesus, who is my neighbor? That's when Jesus tells him a story. But a man, riding his bike back from Red Rock Canyon, when he's run off the road and mugged, beat up, stripped and robbed, and left half dead along the road. Along comes the pastor of the church. He sees the man laying there. Well, i got to get to church. There's people waiting on me. And so the pastor passes on by the other side. And then comes the church leader, sees the guy laying there, but i got to get to a committee meeting, they're counting on me, passes by the other side. And then comes the Samaritan, or the enemy, whoever it is that you put in that spot of the Samaritan, you know, those people who live on the other side of the lines that we have drawn, and at this point you might think things are about to go from bad to worse for this man. But it's the Samaritan who stops and out of compassion helps the guy. And we get Jesus' point. It's not a hard thing to understand. He's telling us to help people who are in need. Just help folks who are in need. But there's a little bit more to the story than that because Jesus never tells us who this guy is who's laying half dead alongside the road. And we can't figure it out because all of those cues that would help us to understand who this guy is, they're gone. He's been stripped naked. He's unconscious. He can't talk. We have no idea. Is this guy a Jew or a Samaritan? Is he a Christian or a Muslim or an atheist? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Is he a victim or has he gotten what he deserved?" No wonder the priest passed on by the other side. He didn't know to whom this guy belonged, what side of the line he was on. No wonder the Levite passed on by the other side. For all he knew, the guy had gotten what he deserved. But the Samaritan, all he didn't see any of that stuff. All he sees is a human being in need of help. And the difference between the Samaritan and the priest, the difference between the Samaritan and the Levite, is some of the difference between kingdom living and earthly life. In this world, earthly life, in this world, people draw lines to separate themselves from other people. And a sense of judgmentalism grows up within us as we start thinking about us and them and how we are the ones who are right and they're the ones who are wrong. We're the ones who are deserving, they are not deserving. We're the ones who are better, they are the ones who are worse. And a sense of judgmentalism that grows up within us. It reinforces these lines that we draw, and it makes it all the easier for us to pass on by somebody who is in need. Maybe the person's just getting what they deserve. But kingdom living is different from that. For one thing, in kingdom living, well, God's working on our hearts. King David cries out, "'Create in me a new heart, O God.'" The prophet Jeremiah foresees the day when Jesus would come and we'd be given a new heart, not like the old one. On our new heart, God's going to write God's law. And what is that law? It is the law of love. God is working to take that sense of judgmentalism out of us in order to perfect us in love so that as we look around this world in which we live, all we see are human beings. We, those lines that separate folks begin to disappear and what we see are human beings created in the image of God now. Yes, some human beings are lost. And yes, some human beings are hurting. And yes, some human beings are in need of help. And yes, everyone is loved by God. And the Christian life, kingdom living, has to do with us Helping people who are in need, regardless of who they are, but simply because they are created in God's image. Now, when it comes to doing that, sometimes I think it's a little easier to do it as a church than it is to do it individually. And as a church, helping other people, we do a pretty good job. I mean, we we seem to understand the point of the parable. Think about how it is that we've saved the lives of 7,000 children who would otherwise have died of malaria on the continent of Africa. Or how a few Christmases ago we provided 335,000 meals for people who are hungry here in Las Vegas. I mean, I think about our church and how we help other people, and we do a pretty good job. All I have to say is family promise, and you know what I mean. All I have to say is spread the word Nevada. Nevada. Or all I have to say is Angel Tree. Or all I have to say is Sacks for Souls. Or all I have to say is the VFW. Or the Rescue Mission. Or Street Teams. Or Nevadans for the Common Good. And on and on and on the list goes of ways that we are helping people who are in need. As a church, we do a pretty good job. But sometimes I think it's easier to do so as a church than it is individually. I mean, as individuals, we see people who are in need of help every day. Every day we see people who are in need of help. And we can't help everybody. I mean, no one of us can help all the people who are in need that we encounter. So what are we to do? Well, let me suggest three little things to think about. The first one is to pray to God to continue that work of perfecting your heart in love, to help you to see any sense of judgmentalism that's in there, any lines that you have drawn that remain, to help you see that, so that God can begin that work of taking that away, perfecting our heart in love. And then secondly, I'd say, think about how God has equipped you to serve other people. The gifts that God has given you, how you are equipped to make a difference in this world. I mean, we don't all have the same gifts and we can't all do the same thing. There are some here who might be able to provide resources for those who are in need of help While others might be able to pray for those who are in need of help. While others might be able to advocate for the kinds of changes needed to help folks. While others might be able to sit down and listen to somebody else's story as a way of helping. All of us have our own gifts. We're equipped in some way or another to help other people. Think about how you're equipped. about how God might use that to make a difference in this world. And then third, think about God's call on your life. In the midst of this world, are there people that God is calling you to? You know, God called Jonah to go to the Ninevites. Jonah couldn't go to all people, but he could do that. Who is God laying on your heart that might be yours to focus on, to help and to make a difference in their lives. Remember these two things. First, where God's call on your life intersects with human need, that's a place where God will use you to make a difference and do so in a powerful way. Jonah, Nineveh. And secondly, Remember this, when we draw lines to separate ourselves from other people, all we really end up doing is cutting ourselves off from the very place God is most apt to be working. Think about that. And thanks be to God. Amen? Amen.